Take your Bibles out tonight and uh, turn with me to Matthew 25. Find Matthew 25 with me this evening. I want to bring a message entitled Watchful Readiness. Watchful Readiness, Matthew 25. And uh, beginning in verse 1 and reading down through verse 13. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word please? Matthew 25. Jesus said, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Lord, speak to us tonight through your word. And if there are any in this place who perhaps are not ready, Lord, that you would do a special work in them that can only be explained as a work of the sovereign grace of your Spirit. Lord, for those who have prepared, may we not slumber. May we practice a watchful readiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, folks, one of the great celebrated themes of the Bible is the second coming of Jesus Christ. You'll recall that passage of Scripture that we read a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus gave his disciples his final instructions of how they were to go into all the world beginning in Jerusalem and they were to be a witness of him. And the Bible says that Jesus was lifted up before their very eyes and they were were standing there gazing as any of us would do, I'm sure. And all of a sudden an angel appeared to them and said, Men and brothers, why are you looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who is left will come again in like fashion. The early church proclaimed the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus himself spoke often of his return. And and we know that every day that passes gets us one day closer to when that event is going to take place. It could be tonight. 
We just don't know. And so because we don't know what is our part to be, our part is that we would be ready. The Boy Scout motto of being prepared, I think, is a wise word of counsel uh, to us tonight. You know, we're called upon to be prepared in much of life. In school, we do our homework, we study, we prepare for the day of testing and athletics. Teams practice and prepare. They spend adequate time in the, in the weight room and in strength training. They watch film and, and study plays. They study their upcoming opponent. They scrimmage together. In business, we know preparation is made. Budgets are prepared. Training is conducted. Technology is invested in and advanced at any occasion. The fact of the matter is we prepare all of the time. In fact, you prepared to be at church today. You remember that story I told you some years ago about the lady with new neighbors? And she was working out in her yard and she was all sweaty and grungy and grimy. And the new neighbors came across the fence to, to meet them. And, and, and she and her husband said, y'all come over Friday night for, for cake and, and, and coffee. We'd like to get to know you better. And so that day she was getting ready. She was putting on her false eyelashes. She was putting on her false fingernails and she was getting ready and squeezing into her girdle and putting on all the makeup and, and getting everything ready. And with a sigh of relief, she looked into the mirror and she said to her husband, Ah, tonight they are going to see the real me. <laughs> we prepare all the time. Jesus taught us to make the same kind of preparations for eternity and the need to do so is now. It's urgent. The time may be at hand when the cry will sound, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And folks, what we see here is when that happens, it's going to be too late to get ready then. Whatever state you are in is the state in which you'll be taken. As we look at this passage tonight, we see that it fits within that portion of Scripture known as the Olivet Discourse. Turn back to chapter 24 a minute. In chapter 24, and I'm going to ask the guy upstairs to give me a little bit of monitor so I can hear tonight what y'all hear. But anyway, in chapter 24... Uh, we see that uh, the Olivet Discourse is beginning there. Chapter 23 consisted of Jesus' confrontation with the different religious leaders. And that chapter closed with Jesus' denouncement on the religious establishment. Uh, we see there in verse 38, he says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In chapter 24, Jesus goes out of the temple, symbolic of the end of the temple's relevance in the purposes of God. God's not dealing with people anymore based on the old covenant. Based on the Old Covenant temple and all the Old Covenant sacrifices. That's obsolete as the book of Hebrews teaches us. That's not even factoring into God's program now of dealing with men and women. God's purposes are in Christ. And of course we know we're told here that Christ was rejected. 
In verse 2 of chapter 24, the Bible says, He answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. We know that happened in 70 A.D. When the Romans came in under Titus, And they destroyed the temple. Titus had told his troops to be reserved when it came to the temple. But some of the troops went into the temple. They set the interior on fire. Once they set it on fire, Titus said, okay, just go ahead and destroy it. And they went in and as the temple was burning, the gold vessels and utensils in the temple melted and poured down between the cracks in the temple. And so the Roman soldiers took big problems bars and they literally pried stone upon stone away from one another in fulfillment of Jesus words here that not one stone would be left on another that happened again in 70 AD and then in verse 3 of chapter 24 we see the disciples question that's a two-part question it says as he sat on the Mount of Olives the disciples came to him privately saying tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age when will these things be the destruction of the temple Jesus deals with that all the way down through verse 35 And then look at verse 34, what he said there in verse 34 uh, of chapter 24. In verse 34 he said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Because many of them there that day were going to see what would happen in 70 A.D. And then they asked, what will be the sign of your coming? Jesus begins dealing with that in verse 35 of chapter 24. He deals with that the rest of the chapter and he gets down to verse 42. And you'll notice what he says there in verse 42. He says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. For some it's going to come unexpectedly. As he mentioned there in verse 43, like a thief in the night. For others, it's going to be sooner than expected. In verse 44, he said, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Still for others, it'll take place later than they expected. Look at what he says in verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So for some it comes sooner than expected. For others later than expected. And so when he comes down into chapter 25 and tells the story of the ten virgins, the parable of the ten virgins, what is the theme? If we don't know when he's coming, it might be sooner than expected or it might be later than expected. What is the point? The point is to be ready. 
Because if you're ready, it doesn't matter when it takes place. And so we see here that we're to be prepared for whenever it might occur. Now there's four things I want you to see in this passage tonight. First of all, I want you to see expectation. Expectation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 25. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now I want you to notice from this verse that apparently all ten virgins expected to meet the bridegroom. Now folks, isn't it amazing how so many expect to be with Jesus Christ one day? People just expect that somehow or another they are going to be with Him and they're going to take part in all of the joys of heaven. When we read about heaven in the Bible, we see it's always described in happy terms. We read of great festive occasions like like banquets and parties and, and different images like that that describe for us what a joyous occasion heaven is going to be. And most people believe that they are going to be there. They think it's just going to all turn out in the end. We've got premillennialists today. We've got amillennialists. There's even a few postmillennialists. Some are just panmillennialists. They think somehow or another it's all going to pan out in the end. But folks, that's not what we see in the Word of God. We see in the Word of God that you've got to prepare. You've got to be ready. You've got to have reservations. In fact, the Lord Jesus spoke of two working together in the field. One would be taken and one will be left. Two sleeping together in a bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women grinding together at the mill. One will be taken the other will be left. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And then later on in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name. And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so we see there's a wide road that leads to destruction. And there's a narrow road that leads to eternal life. There's a heaven and there's a hell. And we see in the Bible that not everybody ends up in the same place. Heaven is a place of eternal bliss where we're with the Lord. And hell is a place of eternal torment prepared for the devil and his angels. And so if we're to be prudent, we'll be prepared. We'll be ready. We'll be ready to go home and go to heaven. It doesn't just happen without advanced planning. But here go these ten virgins and all of them are equally expecting to meet the bridegroom. Second thing I want you to see with me though is differentiation. 
differentiation. Look at verse 2 down through verse 4. It says, five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. The Bible says here five were wise, five were foolish. How do we know the difference? Well, just continue reading and you see what the two groups respectively did. Folks, people are vastly different. Vastly different. And that's true in spiritual things too, isn't it? People are vastly different. Jesus highlights the five foolish virgins and says, essentially, do not be like them. He's saying, look at them closely. Look at their lives and learn because he wants us to see it doesn't just all magically work out for everybody in the end. And what's the analogy that he gives here? He gives here the analogy or the illustration of weddings in ancient Jewish life. Now, as you might figure, we've been concentrating a lot lately on weddings, Connie and me. And you know what? It's amazing how people do things so differently, isn't it? You know what? I always envision big church weddings, church packed full, and everybody there. And Melinda always said, Daddy, I don't, that's not me. I don't want to do it that way. I want an outdoor, small, garden type wedding. I said, Melinda, outdoor weddings. I've seen everything happen at an outdoor wedding. You don't want an outdoor wedding. Oh, yes, Daddy, I want an outdoor wedding. Melinda, I've seen grooms pass out. I've seen bridesmaids pass out and ushers pass out. I've seen cars go by and race their engines. I've done weddings on lakes. And I remember one lake lake wedding I did one time down on a pier at Lake Wiley. The the day was so perfect and, and the lake was so calm and quiet. And we got out on that big pier and I began the service. And it's like everybody on the east coast brought their boat that day. And as soon as I started the wedding ceremony, they all started racing by the dock and we're sitting there I mean we needed Dramamine that day on on that pier so I hear outdoor weddings and I cringe and then Melinda started telling me about this place that she's picked out for next weekend and how that place Limits the number to a fairly small number. And she says, you see, Daddy, this is all it's going to cost you instead of this. And then all of a sudden I'm saying, hey, yay, I love outdoor weddings. This is pretty nice, Melinda. I've seen just about anything at weddings. I've seen an associate pastor up here drop the rings and they bounce across the stage and he's got to go run after them. Right, Kevin? (laughs) Now in Bible days, according to one rabbinic law, the earliest a young girl could be married 
was 12 years of age. That ain't right. 12 years of age. And the earliest that a young man could be married was 13. The marriages most often were, were prearranged by the fathers while the, while the bride and the groom were still children. I think of what Richie Davis tells Emily. He says, baby, you can love a rich man just as good as you can love a poor man. I think he likes the idea of arranged marriages. In Bible times, though, uh, after the arrangement, then came the time of betrothal. But when they were making the arrangement at, at the table, the, the groom-to-be and his dad sitting down with the bride's family, and they would be working out all the arrangements of the dowry or the wedding price. Now, hey, I like that part. Because you see, the groom would pay the bride's father a sum of money. You see, the thought was, a son, if you had a son that you were raising, he was a good farmhand. So it was the belief he didn't end up costing you that much, but it was the girls who would cost you. And so the bridal price that the groom-to-be would pay to the bride's dad, they viewed it as a way the bride's dad and the bride's mom could get some of the money back in raising a girl. Sorry, ladies, that's just the way it was. But then when your son got married, you know, you would be the one that would have to get together all that dowry. And so it was actually a son back then. If you were marrying off a son, that's where you had to pay the big bucks. Just think of how things have changed today. Just the opposite, isn't it? Next weekend, Connie and I, we've said we're going to be tired and broke, mostly broke. Well, once they got up from the table, from that point on, any time the bride-to-be went out in public, she was supposed to put a veil over her face. Because she had already been set apart, she had been sanctified, she had been bought at a price. And she was to cover her face out in public lest another young man would see her face and be attracted to her and maybe try to want to move in on that wedding and steal her heart away. And so she had to wear a veil. Now as the groom got up from the table of making all the negotiations. It was his responsibility from that point on to go and prepare the bridal chamber where they would spend the honeymoon and then the home where his new wife and he together were going to live. He had to go and take care of that. And so when he got up from the table, does anybody know what he would say? As he got up from the table, he would look at his bride and say, I go to prepare a place for you. Does that make you think of anything? John chapter 14, where Jesus tells his disciples, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. 
He paid our purchase price on the cross. He's ascended to his Father. And he's preparing the bridal chamber. He's preparing the heavenly home where he will bring his bride one day and we will dwell with him for all of eternity. I go to prepare a place for you. The bride and groom usually exchange some type of simple vows to a small network of family and friends and and then they would go back home and live with their parents for up to a year while all the preparations were being complete. And the couple from that point on was considered married and promised to one another during the betrothal. In fact, at that point in the relationship, it could only be broken by an official bill of divorce. And if the husband-to-be died, if something happened to him and he died, he passed away during that year that he was betrothed to his beloved, she was considered a widow even though she was a virgin. Well, the third thing I want you to see here is elongation. Elongation. Pick up reading with me at verse 5. Notice what's said there. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Bible weddings could take a huge amount of time. There was this elongation of time, even the week leading up to the marriage. And when it was time for the public marriage, the entire community or village would get involved and the time of celebration would begin. And the celebration would go on for an entire week. And the groom-to-be would have a party at his house with all of his friends. The bride-to-be would have a party at her house with all of her friends. And then the groom and his party would go get the bride and her party. And there would be a great procession of lit torches back to the groom's house. But sometimes scholars say the groom and his party got tied up. They got carried away in their celebration And it'd be forever, it would seem, before they would go get the bride. Scholars suggest it was not uncommon that at the last minute, there might even still be some bridal price negotiations being completed, finished up as the groom was finishing payment to the bride's daddy. And that could cause a delay. But at any rate, it wasn't uncommon for things to get sort of uh, dragged out. Whatever the reason for the delay. And the five wise bridesmaids were well aware that, that the groom and his party might be late. And so what did they do? They prepared for a long delay. But the five foolish virgins saw only the moment at hand. Now folks, isn't that the way it is even today with people rejecting giving their life to Christ? What do so many say? They say, you know what, I'll do that someday and they'll procrastinate. 
You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that behold, today is the day of salvation. You can't procrastinate. I think of those speeches of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts as Paul would stand before Roman authorities like Felix and Agrippa. And you'll remember on that one occasion when Agrippa said, Paul, do you think you're going to convince me to be a Christian in such a short amount of time? He said, do you think so quickly you're going to persuade me? And Paul said, I wish that I could not only persuade you, but everybody. Folks, do you realize in the Word of God, every time we have an image of somebody procrastinating, somebody saying, I'll take care of my spiritual life later. I'll get right with the Lord later. Do you realize that in every one of those occurrences in the Bible, we never read of that person ever coming to faith in Jesus Christ? It almost seems like when somebody says, you know what, there'll be a day, someday out in the future when I'll give attention to that. It almost seems like they are writing their contract. It is certain that they're going to be in hell one day. Procrastination. Chuck Swindoll writes a beautiful illustration about procrastination. He says, allow me to introduce a professional thief. Quick as a laser and silent as a moonbeam. He can pick any lock in your home or office. You'll treat him like your closest friend, but ah, watch out. He'll strip you without a blink of remorse. Master of clever logic that he is, the bandit will rearrange the facts just enough to gain your sympathies. Many stroll to their graves arm in arm with the very robber who has stolen away their lives. His name? Procrastination. He whispers the magic word, manana, as you reach for a donut and a cup of coffee to celebrate your philosophy. Never do today what you can put off until tomorrow. Maybe that describes somebody here tonight with spiritual things. You know what? I can assure you that there are many people in hell tonight that that describes exactly what they did. They thought there would be a day that they would settle accounts with the Lord. They thought there would be a day that they would have another opportunity to hear the gospel, another opportunity to get saved. And the Lord was working on their heart and drawing them to faith in Christ. And they said, not yet. I'll give attention to that someday. And that someday never came for them. Because as the book of James says, life is a vapor and their life was over before they realized it. I want you to notice the five foolish virgins even hung out with the five wise. They were all together. They were friends, you would assume. Everyone would have looked at them and saw a great deal of similarities between them. But again, they were very, very different. 
Now, folks, it's not that the five foolish virgins were evil. There's no hint in this parable that they were wicked. In fact, presumably, the foolish virgins were just as good as the wise virgins. No comment is made negatively about either their ethics or their morality. It's simply that half of them were prepared and half were not. Now, folks, it'd be pressing a simple parable far too much, I think, to suggest that Jesus is saying half of everybody is not prepared. But I do think we can highlight here that we're not simply talking about a few. We know that when the Lord returns for His bride, for those who belong to Him, He's going to find many who are not ready. And so what we find right here in this parable is not an isolated situation. In fact, did you realize that George Barna in his studies and Gallup in their studies and polls, both of them have come to the same conclusion and interestingly enough, separate from one another. They tell us that in America now, even in the evangelical church, that perhaps the, the, the born-again believers, those who are truly saved, are only about 6% of society, even in the church. You see, when some surveyors ask questions, they're too general. Do you consider yourself a Christian? Oh yeah. Are you a church member? Oh yeah. Have you ever walked an aisle or made a profession of faith? Oh yes, certainly. And when surveys limit themselves to questions like that, about 85% of the public says, we're Christian. But Barna and Gallup have started digging down a little deeper with their questions. And they've started asking things like, has there ever been a time in your life that you've had that experience that the New Testament refers to as being born again? Has there ever been that time in your life that you were convicted of your sin and you repented of it and you became a new creation in Christ and your spirit that was dead has been quickened and now you're alive? You're alive to the things of God. When they start asking questions like that, 6% say, yes, I've had that experience. That's scary, isn't it? That's pretty scary to think that that many might be living their lives unprepared. I hope they're wrong. But I have a feeling they're not because, again, even Jesus said the road to destruction is wide and the gate is wide and there's many that travel that road. And Jesus even speaking to a churchman on one occasion. In fact, not just a churchman but a leader and not just a leader but one of the primary leaders in all of Israel, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be born again. 
People used to talk about Billy Graham preaching that at his conferences and, 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 and some in, in the liberal media were, you know, some of you older folks remember how the media got a hold of that and what's this new message that this new young evangelist is preaching that you must be born again as though Billy Graham was the one who invented that phrase. He's not the one who invented that phrase, Jesus did. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. What was the implication to Nicodemus, a churchman, a primary position there in the temple, primary position in the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel? Jesus looked at Nicodemus and essentially was saying, Nicodemus, you might think of yourself as a good man and a religious man, but you're a lost man. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born of the Spirit. Just like there's a physical birth, there's a spiritual birth. And it's clear Nicodemus didn't get it because he said, Lord, how in the world can a man, a grown man, get back inside of his mother and be born all over again a second time? He didn't get it. A lot of people today, don't get it. But has there been that spiritual birth in your life? What's going to happen to those who have never been born again? All over the earth last night, even right here in this city, there were people who closed their eyes for the last time. Maybe after an extended illness. Maybe after an automobile accident. But all around us last night and last week, just like babies were being born, people were also dying. And some of them were ready, but some of them were not. They were like these five foolish. And during this elongated amount of time that it's taking the Lord to come back, you know what a lot of people are sitting around thinking? They're thinking, I've got all the time in the world. I've got all of my life to live. And, and one of these days when I get a whole lot older, I'll take care of that. I'll get saved just in time. They're thinking they've got all the time in the world. But folks, we don't. We don't. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. Well, the last thing I want you to see with me tonight is separation. Separation. It says here, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's go back to the typical wedding back then for a second. There would be callers. In the groom-to-be's group. 
And when they finished their celebration at, at the groom-to-be's home, and they would, they would all get together and they would be making that procession through the streets at night, going to the bride's house, and before they arrived at the bride's house, they would send runners on up ahead. And it was the job of the runner to get to the bride-to-be's home and say, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And that way, the bride and her family and all of her bridesmaids, they would scamper and they would get their torches and they would get ready. Because you see, when the bridegroom got to her house and she went out to meet him, then the bridegroom and his party would do a 180 and they would go back through the streets in the city with their, with their lamps shining brightly and they would go back to the groom's home where the wedding would take place. But these callers would run on up ahead so the bride could be ready. And we're told here that as the bridegroom delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Here again, they were all, notice, they were all guilty of that. But we're told at midnight, there came the cry. Again, what's being indicated there is an unexpected amount of time. And it came at midnight. Maybe symbolic. That when the Lord comes, midnight is a dark hour. And so, spiritually speaking, Jesus is saying, when He comes for His bride, it's going to be very dark. You get what I'm saying? Very dark. The children of Israel began their journey of leaving Egypt at midnight. Rabbinical tradition said that the Messiah would come. They thought he would come the first time at midnight. Scripture's indicating we don't know when the bridegroom will come. It'll be after a long delay, as I've already mentioned. After those who are waiting have grown weary, and then all of a sudden the call rings out. And at this point, the girls in the parable, they scramble together and they get their torches because they know what's coming next. They're ready to form this bridal procession. And so the ten scramble to their feet. They light their torches. Oftentimes the torches would just be a rag tied to a stick at the top and they would have a flask of oil. And about every 10 or 15 minutes they would have to re-dip their, their rag into that oil and, and relight it. And here's where the foolish realize they've not made adequate preparation. They don't have any oil. They weren't prepared. And they ask the others, but the wise know that they don't have enough oil for themselves and others. The point is not that they're selfish. The point is rather you can't make it on somebody else's oil. It's a decision you've got to make for yourself. You've got to be prepared. You've got to be ready. And so the five foolish try to do the impossible. They go to make preparation hoping to make it back in time. But folks, the Bible says when Jesus splits that eastern sky and calls for his bride, it's going to be too late then to get ready. The Bible says it's going to happen in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. 
At the sound of that last trump, that's how quick it's going to be. It's too late for these five foolish virgins. They come running back to the door after they've made preparation, or so they think, and they're knocking on that door, and they're shouting, let us in. And the answer comes back, I don't know you. I don't know you. And they're desperate. In verse 11, it points out the word for saying is is continuous uh, action. In other words, over and over, they're begging and they're calling out. We're here now. We're ready. Let us in. Let us in. Let us in. And the answer comes back, no. No. Folks, the Bible says that many people will hear Depart from me, I never knew you. There is no second chance. Eternity is forever. The Bible says those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. In Luke 13, 25 to 28, Jesus said, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. And then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Here were these bridal attendants. They look like the rest. They dress like the rest. They associated with one another. They presumably acted like one another. There was only one difference. They weren't ready. And in the only moment that really counts, they couldn't fool anybody. Folks, can you imagine the horror when that time comes? They may have been fine and respectable church members who hung out with all the rest, but now they stand before holy God and they realize they're eternally lost and there's no second chance. Can you imagine what it must have been like for those in Noah's day? When Noah got on the ark and God brought all those animals to the ark and the door was shut and they were still outside maybe laughing at this crazy man on that ark. But then the rain came and the rain came and the rain came and and the waters continued to go up and up and up and then it wasn't so funny anymore, was it? But it was too late. It was too late. Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, graphically pictured lost sinners dangling over the flames of hell by a single tiny thread. And their position is so precarious that at any moment that tiny little thread that they are dangling by may break and they fall into hell. And experience those flames. But it's too late. It's too late. 
Lord, we're here. We want in. Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. And folks, as you can imagine, the punchline comes in verse 13. Jesus says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And as he goes on to point out in the next parable in this chapter, how we can know that we are prepared is that we are faithful with the talents that have been given to us. The five, the five talents, the guy that received those, he was faithful. The guy with two was faithful. The one with one was not. And he was cast away. The message there is just like the book of James, that a true faith, somebody who is truly ready, it will be demonstrated in their life by what they do. They're not saved by works. But salvation will have the fruit of good works. Are you ready? Are you ready? Folks, think about this long delay. Over 2,000 years now. And there are some people today, just like in that text that Kevin preached on this morning, in the book of 2 Peter, there are some of those today. But there are some, just like in 2 Peter 3. Some that are saying, you know, it's not happened yet, so evidently it's not even going to happen. And they begin to doubt and scoff. And they get lazy about the Lord's work. Some give up on the Lord's work altogether. Again, probably demonstrating that they're not even in the Lord's company to begin with. But the Bible says, don't be mistaken. He is coming. He is coming. And when He comes, only those prepared will go in to be with the bridegroom. Are you prepared? Would you bow your heads with me tonight, please? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Don't be called unprepared. It's going to be too late. The door will be shut and you'll be on the outside. My guess is there may be somebody here tonight who's not assured that they're saved you have no assurance about the most important decision in all of life no assurance at all have you been born again have you been made new from the inside out have you been quickened spiritually to where you're alive now to the things of God I believe you know if that's really happened or not. Because the Bible says you'll be a new creation in Christ. If that's never happened to you, maybe your prayer needs to be tonight, Lord, I want to be born again. I want to be regenerated. God, would you do that in my life? Would you regenerate me? Would you quicken me? 
not saying come down an aisle and fill out a card. I'm saying beg of God to do that work, that supernatural work in your heart that you become a changed person. Ask Him to do that. Christian, there's also a word for you as well in this parable. Do you have loved ones who are not ready? They need to understand the urgency. Pray for them. Witness to them. Warn them. Also, God may be tugging at your heart to make some decision. Some decision that you need to demonstrate your readiness by being active about the Lord's work. Father, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would work on hearts right now. Lord, we know that the Bible teaches that there's coming a day of separation. It doesn't end up okay for a vast majority of people. But God, I pray that no one within the sound of my voice tonight would be in that company of the unprepared. May we be ready to meet you. And God, I pray that you would light a fire within our hearts. That we would care about those around us who don't know you. Lord, that we would tirelessly share the gospel. That we would tirelessly Pray, Lord, that there would be that sense of urgency about our lives. Lord, we thank you for the great salvation that you've prepared for us. We thank you for this analogy of a wedding where a husband and wife come together in love and intimacy and the two become one. And the picture that is of you and your church. God, we thank you for that rich symbolism. We thank you for the great things you have in store for those who are ready. God, may we live our lives with gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Our hymn of invitation, Jonathan, is what? 506. 506. Maybe you are in that company tonight of saying, Pastor, I'm not sure I am ready. And You need to come forward. You just need to say tonight, Pastor, pray for me. I, I'm not going to spin you around and say anything to the crowd. Just You may just want to come forward and say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure that I've ever been born again. I'd love to pray with you. And you know what? I trust that over the coming hours and days, God is going to do that miraculous work in your life. Somebody else that you've got loved ones that you know aren't ready. Again, I want you to think of the horror, the door being shut. And no matter how badly they want entry, they'll not gain entry. Think of that. How horrible. And some of us have loved ones that that is the place and point they're at in their lives tonight. 
It needs to break our hearts. We need to pray for it. And others who have that entry, and yet you're not doing anything with it. Not a thing. What a shame. May the Lord change our hearts.